Welcome in, everybody, to another edition of Kevin Talks Quietly Near the Microphone, also known as Sad Times. My name is Kevin, and uh, we'd like to welcome you in. For those of you who have never listened to Sad Times, welcome. Please tell a friend. Sad Times is a podcast in which a generous and kind guest comes on each week and talks about times they were anxious, depressed, how they dealt with it, times they were upset, how the people they loved dealt with it. Because I do believe that a lot of people don't really talk about these things as much as maybe we should because we all go through them. So the hope is to have somebody come on and tell their story so that you at home who may have had a similar experience can hear this story and then kind of nod along and say, hey, I feel a little bit less alone. And I think as we feel a little bit less alone, we might become a little more empathetic. So thank you for listening. We're going to get to our guests in a moment. If you would like to be a guest, um, please, please uh, send an email to sadtimesk, as in king, c as in cat, at gmail.com. That's sadtimeskc at gmail. And we can let you know how it works. And um, also you can find us on Facebook. If you just search Sad Times, we've got a group page that I was reminded existed not long ago. So that's why I've been posting on it. You're welcome, everyone. Um, Okay. And today's uh, made up sponsor is one I found actually, Brent. Uh, Today's uh, sponsor is the first one to 12 minutes of a long distance run. And the ad copy just reads, fuck you, what a stupid decision. And then at 12 minutes, you just kind of forget you're running. But the first 12 minutes suck. So uh, I'll remember that the next time I go on a run and I hate my life. Uh, Well, I don't know how to transition from that, Brent. So I'll just go ahead and make fun of you, Brent. You're a butthead. Okay. All right. Let's get to our wonderful guest today. Her name is Kate. Kate, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Kevin? Well, I'm better. I'm not running, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I ran a mini marathon one time. What's a mini marathon? Is that like a half marathon? Yeah, like 13.1 miles. Mm -hmm. I've done it. I did it for a boy and he broke up with me. So that was my sign never to do that again. Yeah. uh, I mean, was he waiting at the finish line and he broke up with you? Uh, no, but it was, it was pretty soon after that. He was like, come train with me. It's a family thing. We all do it together. And I trained and uh-huh. I didn't train enough and I ran it and it was awful. And then he broke up with me and I was like, I just ran 13.1 miles for your ass. Never again. Never again. You said you didn't tr- quote unquote train enough. You weren't hurt or anything in the run, were you? Nothing beyond Someone who was just running a few miles for pleasure and exercise would hurt after they decided to take on 13.1 miles. Okay. So nothing like you didn't like break your ankle or or tear your Achilles or something? No. Uh Uh-uh. No. If you're listening out there, gentleman who likes to run, that wasn't very nice. Okay. No, it wasn't. Uh, Well, may I ask how old were you when you ran that? Oh, goodness. Uh, 22, 23. Okay. So a couple years after we met uh, freshman year of college, we went to the prestigious school in the southern part of Illinois, which we never name on the show. Mm-hmm. I've and, noticed that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so you were, I think uh, you were a freshman with me, but you graduated early, right? I did. I did. So you did it in three and a half years. Yes. No one told me that it wasn't like high school. I thought you had to take six classes every semester. That's awful. That's so too many. 
especially Six classes every and, semester. And you were active in theater, so it's not like oh, I got done with class and go home, maybe do homework. No, I go do a show or go do that or that, this or that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you are from, and I'm going to say it correctly here, Louisville. Uh, uh, you can, did not say it correctly. Oh, it's I Louisville. didn't. It's, it's Louisville. Oh, that's right. I used to always say you said it like this. Yeah, you would just, yes. <laughs> Where are you from? <laughs> oh, you're from Louisville? Something like that. It's uh, Louisville. Louisville. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you were growing up as we all grew up. And you, when did you start noticing that you were feeling, maybe you didn't even know these words yet, but that you were feeling depressed or something felt wrong, depressed and or anxious? Um, yeah, I definitely did not have that vocabulary. Right. I knew something was a little different, a little off in middle school. Um, you know, in retrospect, when I look back at some of my traits and my behavior in elementary school, I can see it now as like, ooh, that's anxiety, that's this, that's but I didn't really start noticing it in myself until middle school. Okay. And actually, uh, you shared a, a wonderful conversation that you had uh, a couple years ago with your pastor with me. And I believe you said in there uh, that you could not be paid to go back to middle school or high school or something to that effect. Yeah, no, you couldn't. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. Nope. Okay. Nope. So wh- how was it starting to come out when you were in middle school, when you started to really notice it? Like, how did you express it as you were feeling these things? And what was kind of the reaction around you? Um. You know, Kevin, we are a unique group of people because we do theater. We love theater. We do theater. And when you get a bunch of theater people together, it is a very eclectic bunch. Mm. Um, Going to a pretty white suburban upper class middle school and high school, um, you know, I I told you this. I very vividly remember walking to a class in sixth grade and like belting out Pocahontas colors of the wind in the hallway. And some kid just turned and looked at me and was like, you're fucking weird. And um, I think that's when I really started to become aware of how I was different from the people around me. Um, And then Going along with that, I I felt like I was feeling things more than the average person. What do you mean? It does make sense, but uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like you were, uh, maybe you it would take you a, a bit longer to recover from being sad, or you felt like high highs, that type of thing. Yeah, sort of all of it. Um, you know, I wrote a lot of poetry. I loved to write, you know, every play that I wrote, the main character died. It was always very traumatic, (laughs) um, very heightened emotions. There was always some sort of meltdown in, in the script. Um, just everything I felt was a little bit bigger than I thought the people around me were feeling. It was that cathartic to be able to write, say, that meltdown every time or say, now this character will die? <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. I think it was just, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, there's a reason why 
women love Fifty Shades of Grey. And it's because... Is it the prose? The what? The prose? Is it is it how the sentences are constructed? Um, beyond that, I think. <laughs> um, I think that's what, what first draws them in. But oh, it's sure. a story about a woman who just thinks she's average. And along comes this killer man with good looks and money. And he is just like flabbergasted by her beauty and her brains and her talents. You know, I think everyone's got that little bit of themselves that thinks, oh, I'm average and normal, but maybe someday somebody will see me for who I really am. Um, And so, yeah, I had a lot of that going on in middle and high school. And I think, at least for me, even now as a 41-year-old, but certainly in middle school and high school, I never realized that maybe I could be the person who could see myself as worthy. Uh, oh, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. N- yeah, never. And it was a real, I mean, it was a back and forth battle for me because there was a desire to be popular and liked, um, but then not being accepted into that group and then also not really necessarily agreeing with what I thought the popular kids were doing. It was like, why do I want to be a part of something that doesn't want me to be a part of it? And so it was just like this back and forth of why don't they like me? Why do I care? And so it it was it was a very rough rough time for me. Yeah, and I'm gonna go ahead and skip way ahead real fast. We're gonna come back to this, uh, but I think it's really important to say what you've kind of dedicated the last. Oh my gosh, is it like 15 years uh, of your life uh, as a school counselor? Uh, did I get mm-hmm. the timing right? Yeah, I've been a, a school counselor for about 12, 12, 13 years, but been working with kids in some capacity longer than that. Yeah. It's just a really honestly moving thing to hear, especially since, hey, this was uh, something I struggled with all the time as a kid. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to help other kids who are invariably going to struggle with something. And, you know, when you and I were talking earlier this week, you talked about kind of a story that you impart on your the students that you work with about the end of the world. Can you kind of tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I just, I was very fortunate growing up that I had a support system. Um, and so that's always been very important to me to be a support system and to be open and honest. So like, when my fifth graders ask me, like, what do you, what did you think of middle school? What did you, I tell them, like, I hated it, (laughs) but it allowed me to go to college, which I loved. Um, And so I do tell the kids, like, I talk to them about puberty and, you know, I, I'm like, this is embarrassing and you're going to be embarrassed, but you shouldn't be because this is what people go through. Like these, this is a normal and natural thing. So I always show the kids a picture of me in seventh grade, uh, full bone glasses, self cut my bangs, just not a, not a good time (laughs) for me, uh, in terms of my outward appearance. And the kids are always very surprised. And I'm like, you know, I would make fun of this kid. You would probably make fun of this kid. Um, but this kid grew up to be your school counselor. And the kids call me Coco Baron. I'm like, and you wouldn't make fun of Coco Baron. Like, you have no idea what people are going to invo- evolve into. And it took me a long time to be comfortable with who I am. So, like, I tell the kids, 
you know, the things that made me weird, the things that made me feel left out and not a part and growing up were like, you know, bursting out in song in the hallway uh-huh. and wanting to dance and, and a flash mob. And I loved theater. And so th- these were, I like corny jokes. These were all the things that made me different from everybody else. But these are the things that make me who I am today. These are the things that like the kids love about me at school and, and what make me great and special. And so I tell the kids, I'm like, you know what? You're going to come home and you're going to throw yourself on the bed and you're just going to think my life is awful. This is miserable. You know, I just, you're going to think all kinds of stuff. And when you do that, I, I want you to also think, Miss Barron told me this was going to happen because it is. Mm-hmm. And it is going to feel like the end of the world when you're in it. Like nothing can get worse. How are you going to get out of it? What do you do? But I also want you in those moments to think Miss Barron said I was going to be here. And then in those moments, you know, like we're going to get through this. Don't know how. I'm going to feel what I need to feel right now. But Miss Barron told me, this was going to happen and I was going to feel this way. It's almost as if, well, there's so many wonderful things about that, but it's almost as you're giving people permission to feel what they're feeling and not think that the world is imploding. And then when they have quote unquote permission to feel what they're feeling, they also feel a lot less alone. If Miss Barron went through this and, 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 you know, she, she and I, she told me this and she's fine Mm -hmm. now, even without those self-cut bangs, you know, Mm -hmm. I will be fine too. Yeah. And, you you know, I think that um, when people feel like the world is ending, they should be allowed to feel like the world is ending. Mm. Um, I think it's really easy for us as adults to look at kids and their meltdowns and be like, oh, my gosh, get over it. But but it's important to remember that, like, right then in their life, like that is traumatic, you know, um, and so, yeah, if, if if it feels like the world is ending, let it feel like the world is ending. Feel those things, feel it, recognize it. And then we we go through it and we move on. I think that's so, so valuable because my 32, 33 years of therapy, you know, one of the big things that I keep getting told over and over again is, Kevin, you just got to sit with it, got to sit with it. Mm-hmm. And again, to be told by somebody, you know, if I was a kid and I'm sure that people did try to tell me that I'm not saying that um, I'm just a stubborn motherfucker. And Mm -hmm. to be told by someone like, hey, it's okay to feel like this. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a really empowering thing as well. So I I think that's wonderful. And I know that as you were going through um, your uh, Pocahontas in the hallway phase into, into high school, you kind of felt. Correct me if I'm wrong here. You kind of felt, well, I'm different and, and something's wrong. And um, you kind of moved to other ways to deal with how you were anxious and depressed. Is is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so I really um, – I was very unhappy with myself and my life and – um, just feeling really sort of out of place and out of control. Um, and so I, I moved m- towards 
eating disorder and cutting. Those were my two major coping skills all through middle and high school and onward past that. Was there one that came before the other or, or they both, did they both kind of organically happen around the same time? Gosh, I don't know if I've ever thought about that, Kevin. Well, I asked the tough questions here. I feel like they both sort of organically came on their own. Um, I do think I always had a preoccupation with sort of weight and how I look. Um, I also feel like society does that to girls. Mm -hmm. Um, It just, I can't, I, I don't know where the pinpoint is that I took it one step further. Um, Okay. That's, that's fine. So um, I know that you have a really powerful story uh, to tell on both of these topics. Um, I want to ask you about cutting. Mm -hmm. Um, I, have never uh, knowingly had the urge to do this. And Mm -hmm. so it is something that I empathize, but I don't know if I understand it fully. Um, And I I appreciate that you're even willing to come on and be so open and honest about it. Um, Is it, does it, is it, do you see it as something that's like, I start with this and then it gets worse and worse, or does it stay in cutting? And why do you think that you did, why you were cutting? Why, why do you think you were cutting? Excuse me. Okay, so um, when people ask me about cutting or like when I deal with cutting in my job, um, I think sometimes I can scare people because I'm a, I'm a little bit laxed and more laid back about it. Um, so in my experience and in all the research I've done on cutting, it is not like the gateway to suicide. Those individuals who cut are not intending to cause themselves like real physical harm. They are not trying to die. They are not working their way up to die. Um, It is just a really bad coping skill. And the reality is, is that every single person out there has some really bad coping skills. Some may drink too much. Some may bite their nails. Some may chug Diet Coke and some may cut. Um, It doesn't mean that it's okay to cut. Like, I don't want anyone to go out there and be like, this school counselor says that you should cut. It's acceptable because that's not um, that's not what I'm saying. Right. But it it is a coping skill. Um, and the important thing that I always try to advise parents or caregivers when they have a child who cuts is that um, sometimes they need to do that. It's a buildup. They need that cutting as a coping skill. Um, the important thing is always to keep the cut area clean. But um, sometimes you have to continue to let them cut in order to work through all of those emotions to come to a point where a new coping skill is learned and perfected. Um, For me, it was like, I felt all of this stuff going on in my life and there were things that I wasn't happy about. And there were also things where it was just like, why am I not Like, why am I not happy? Why do I feel sad? Why do I feel this way? 
and not being able to explain it or give rational thought behind it um, and being uh, pretty angry and upset with myself as well. There was just a lot of self-deprecation. And so cutting, you know, when, when you cut yourself, it hurts. And you can look and you can say, that hurts. I know why it hurts. I'm cutting my skin. And it makes sense. It's like, that hurts. It hurts because it's bleeding. That makes sense. Like, I get all of that. Whereas sometimes when you're hurting on the inside, it it doesn't make sense. Um, and for me, I've always kind of had this perfectionism streak in me where I want to be a people pleaser. I want to do good. I want to sort of present the best version of myself at all times. And so having these thoughts and these feelings that I couldn't put into words and I couldn't explain and I couldn't fix, cutting was a way of releasing that and um, and being able to deal with all those other unhappy things swirling around me. Is it also, and maybe this is what you're saying, I want to make sure that I understand, is it also the pain of the cutting at least momentarily distracts you from the emotional internal pain or is that not a was not part of the equation for you no i don't i don't think that was part of it it was more just like i mean you definitely felt the pain but it was like this is pain that makes sense i know why this is hurting was it a form of control yeah i think a lot of it is control i think a lot of it is um for me personally like not being able to ask for help, um, feeling like I sort of, you know, having, I have to do this on my own. I can do this on my own. I can fix this on my own. I can get through this on my own. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, for me, it was always sort of making sense of nonsense. Mm. You know, I, I didn't know why I was upset. I didn't know why I wasn't having a better time in life. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't necessarily fix that. I didn't know how to fix it. I didn't know how to get help, but if I cut myself and it hurt, that made sense. And so it was a little bit of, I guess, peace and comfort of, okay, I know why that hurts. Mm -hmm. Why do you think you couldn't ask for help? Uh, I mean, I, I have through a lot of therapy come to my own sort of realizations about why I think that was. And we don't have to go into that. I, I, I was more curious because I have a hard time asking for help too. Um, yeah. And I don't know my, why that is exactly. Well, you know, Kevin, one of the, I have loved listening to a lot of your podcasts because a lot of them have reminded me of sort of my own family and things that we have gone through. Um, My dad's dad was an immense alcoholic Mm -hmm. um, and sort of my dad's whole family has had addictions of some sort. um, And my dad has gotten out of that. He has removed himself from the situation um, 
and so I think some of that plays into it because my dad is definitely a control freak like myself, where there were so many things in his life he couldn't control that he wants to control what he can. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother also had a learning disability in the 80s when this was not like, you know, dyslexia was not really a thing. Um, and so, you know, when he was going through early elementary education, the solution was kind of to put him in, um, you know, the severe disabilities class. And my brother is not, has not, will never be low functioning. He's extremely intelligent, but he learns differently. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I know that that was really hard on my parents trying to find answers for what Mason had and what he needed. Um, and, and and also battling like the stigma. Right. Um, and so I think in some ways, my brother was the firstborn and I was the baby, but I think in some ways I was the firstborn because a lot of the things that I was doing, I was the first one in the family doing it. And I also think that because I saw the struggle with my brother, I was trying to be the best that I could. Um, it's almost like you were afraid that you were going to put more stress on your parents. And so you said, I'll figure it out myself. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And I think there was also, and this is, uh, I hate to say this because it sounds like a dig on my parents and it's not because you know, we are all learning and growing together. Um, But from my viewpoint, from my perspective, I sort of felt like, you know, it was obvious that my brother had struggles. And so he got a lot of that attention and help. Whereas I don't think all of my struggles were truly um, recognized. And so it was like, well, Kate, you can do this. Like Mason needs our help. You can do this. Um, and so I I think that put a lot of pressure on myself as well. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and so we, we kind of talked about, and thank you again for being so open and honest, uh, about, about cutting. And then you, you also mentioned around the same time you, you started to have uh, an eating disorder and you spoke really movingly, like I said, about this and the, the conversation that you had with your pastor. Um, and I'm curious, you said Often, I believe you said in there that often it's not just anorexia or just bulimia. It's it's sometimes a combination of both. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. Uh huh. And that was Absolutely. was that your experience? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, there are times in my life. I think in high school it was. Um, I was definitely more anorexic of just really limiting my food intake. I, the only thing I would really eat in high school is we sat down as a family together every night and had dinner. Mm -hmm. So I would have family dinner and that would be it. Um, there are points in my life where it definitely got to be more bulimia, where it was binging and purging. Um, and then there were times too where it was a combination of both where I might really restrict what I was eating and then I might throw up. And was this also a form of um, something that you, 
quote unquote can control? It's like I can control what I eat or don't eat. And did that provide you with, um, I don't know if comfort's the right word, but did that provide you maybe with some sort of relief from whatever you were anxious or depressed about? Yeah. I mean, a hundred, a hundred percent. My eating disorder, I mean, it's always been a problem. Don't, don't get me wrong with that. But where it really got to the point that it was impeding my ability to live a normal functioning life was when I was in Pennsylvania. Um, and I, it definitely correlates with the fact of, I had moved up there for a job that I loved. Um, the full-time version of this job was not what I thought it would be. I am living on 600 acres all by myself, away from my family, um, having to sort of go out and meet people on my own. So feeling lonely. And it just... It, it, it spiraled out of control. There... I became very unhappy with who I was and the situation I was in. I also felt this pressure that I couldn't say, you know, like, stop, wait a minute. This isn't what I want. I've changed my mind. I want to go home. Um, and so it really, that's when the whole eating disorder spiraled out of control with me um, to the point of where. It was no longer a decision that I could make. It had to be made for me that I needed to go home and I needed to get help. Okay. Um, yeah. And so this was around 2005, 2006, right? And you graduated college in December 2003, right? Correct. So it. I'm going to ask you this because this is something that I have realized more and more about myself as I've gotten older. Um, I have like a massive – I think we all do from, you know, one way or the other. I have a massive fear of failure. And do you think that you going up there and being like, I'm going to live, or excuse me, you take that full-time job, you go on your own. And it sounds like it was not exactly what you were expecting, which is not a dig at the job. It was just kind of threw you off a little bit. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I definitely have a very huge fear of failure. And I would even say some of mine is a fear of being average or forgotten, like just mixed into the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I may suggest, if you start a podcast, you are definitely mixed in with the crowd because everyone has a <laughs> podcast. Um, yeah. I, I feel that way too. And, you know, so you, when did you get up to Pennsylvania? Can you tell me like the month or of the year, month and year? Um, so I graduated in December, 2003. Mm -hmm. I drove from our prestigious college in Southern Illinois <laughs> to Louisville. I was home for about a week at Christmas. And then I drove up to, uh, near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and immediately started my job. Okay, so basically early January of 2004. Yes. And you were in that job until you went to rehab? Was it the same job? Um, It was, it, it, I was there for a couple, I was there for a while. And then um, during the summer, uh, the summer of 2000. When did I go to rehab? 2005 is when I had to come home to Louisville. 
Okay. So got it. I came I came home to Louisville and I don't think my parents had a very clear idea. They knew something was going on, but you know, I had not been living under their roof. So when I came back home and was living under their roof, that's when they really got a glimpse of, okay, she said it was bad. We thought it was like the job that she was unhappy with, but there's a lot of other shit going on. Um, And so I went to rehab in January 4th of 2006. Did you? So I was, I was home for a couple of months getting some extensive therapy and group therapy before it was, we need to go to rehab and get this fixed. So this is when you got home that summer of 2005 before between when your parents saw, oh no, this is, this appears to be much more serious than we, we thought. Mm -hmm. Did you, did that? make you feel ashamed and that did that lead you did that make it worse meaning uh, short term worse like i'm letting them down and so i will go further into this disorder to try to control something that i can you know kevin i am i hate to say that i am so much more ashamed now of my behavior than i was then but the thing is is like when you are not when you're not eating and you're not letting your food digest, it affects your brain so much. Um, and it affects your ability to think rationally and to sort of make sense of anything. Um, and so in my head, I had sort of convinced myself that nobody knows I've got this under control. Like, and if they ask and I tell them no, that they're going to believe it and everything is going to be okay. Um, and then once I started eating and getting more nutrients to my brain, it really was this eye-opening experience of what the fuck have I done and what have I put these people through? And I think that really made a huge difference in my own recovery is just realizing like, I can never do this. I can never put the people I love through this again. Right. Okay. So once before you went home, kind of what was it? I know you said it's a combination of both, right? So mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of bulimia, maybe uh, I don't mean to say a little bit of, uh, maybe some bulimia, some anorexia. Mm -hmm. Do, when did you know this? Like, was there, you know, they talk about a bottom uh, for alcoholics or drug addicts mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, did you have a bottom or a situation where you're like, I have to get help now? Or because you, you, you said uh, a couple times now it slowly progressed. So mm -hmm. kind of how did it start out and then kind of what, what point did you get to when you realized, okay, I, I have to make a change? Um, there have been times in my life where like, you know, um, I might go through about in college where I, I feel you know, icky in my body. And so I would just not eat for two weeks and then I kind of bounce right back out of it. Or I might go through a, a phase of binging, binging and purging and bounce out of it. Um, so that wasn't uncommon for me. 
When, when I, just a little bit of background, when I was in college, I spent my summers up in Philadelphia. I was a counselor for a camp that brought out inner city kids from Philadelphia. And it was truly a life-changing experience for me. Um, And so when I was graduating college, they asked me to come up there full-time and be the camp director. And I, of course, was like, yes, I love camp. Three months during the summer with kids is a very different job than the other nine months Mm -hmm. (laughs) when you are planning and you're in an office by yourself. Um, And I was not prepared for that. And being in an office and and not moving and not having social interaction is not a good situation for me. Um, So I definitely noticed it getting harder and harder to snap out of those eating disorder spells when that was occurring. Gotcha. Um, When my roommates started noticing stuff, it was like a game or manipulation to me almost where I was like, you don't have anything to worry about. And my roommate's like, you're vomiting after every meal. Like if you're not making yourself do this, you have a serious illness and should go to a doctor. And I'm like, fine, let's go to a doctor. You can come with me. And we went to a doctor and I'm like, I'm throwing up after every meal. And the doctor was like, okay, I think that you have this gastric reflex disease and I'm going to put you on an extremely uh, restricted diet and we'll see how that goes. Um, And that I don't want to, that's no fault to the doctor whatsoever. Um, But it, it, it almost like, it's almost like, sorry to interrupt, but it's almost like, again, not faulting the doctor, but that diagnosis from the doctor, it sounds like did two things. One, it, it, furthered what you probably wanted, which was a restriction Mm -hmm. of eating. And two, it was like a way that you could, I believe you said, you know, manipulate your roommate and say, see, Mm -hmm. is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, and I left Pennsylvania and I think right around the 4th of July weekend where it just, it really got to a point where the people at the camp um, knew that there was something very serious going on. Um, and I was having a very hard time sort of functioning and, um, even to some extent, like putting together work. I mean, it just, it was not a good place for me. And so I came home, um, and I think I had, you know, kind of conveyed it to my parents of, it just wasn't the job for me. Uh, I wasn't happy at the desk. I'm going to go into social work and that's going to make it all better. Um, mm-hmm. And they realized right away that that was not the truth. But, you know, it's really hard when when your child is over the age of 18. Like, you can't make them do anything. Yeah. You know? And I, I, um, you, Sorry, I want to point out something that that you've said on, on this episode that I heard you say when you were speaking with your pastor. Um your brain is not functioning. You are not giving it the nutrients. I think that is so important to remember. Uh, I I often, when I've um, I don't know, had friends who have who have struggled with this or have heard stories about it, what have you. I've I've never thought of it that way, but of course that makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. you, and I then I started to think, oh, there's been some times where I didn't eat, you know, 
for a lot of the day and I couldn't think straight. Just my, I mean, I'm, this is minor, but to do that, mm-hmm. as you said, like to take two weeks off from eating mm-hmm. is, that's insane. And I don't know yeah. how you could even form a, I think you said earlier, you were like having a hard time putting words together. Like, I don't even know how you could form a sentence. And then is so much of what you're saying, is it the case that you're preoccupied with trying to manipulate those around you that you are fine and that they need to not pay attention to what's going on? Yeah. I, I mean, it's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. You don't have to worry about me. I've got this. Um, One of the most... I had a t-shirt, but I've lost it since. One of the most profound things that I heard when I was at rehab was um, one of the therapists told me, you don't have to be perfect. You're mediocre is good enough. Mm. Um, And that just really resonated with me that, you know what? I don't have to be perfect at everything. When I put forth the effort, that's more than enough and it doesn't have to be perfect. But I, I do think that that was a huge part of it with the eating disorder and the manipul- the manipulation and the lies and the cover up is no, 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 I'm fine. Look, I, I'm, I'm doing great. I've got this job. I'm fresh out of college. I have a job. I'm living on my own. I'm paying my own bills. I'm doing great. I look great. Everything's great. You know. Yeah. Don't worry about me. It's fine. I've left the job. I've come home. It's great. I came home because I'm going to go in a new direction and I'm going to go to school and it's going to be great and everything's fine. It's all fine. And the reality is, is that I wasn't fooling anybody. Did you think you were fooling people? Like, were, is that part of the thing is like you would maybe go to bed at night and be like, okay, everybody's okay with it. But now, as you said, as you look back, you know, your parents were uh, just so upset beside themselves because they were so worried about you. Could you see that at the time or was it so, so foggy that you couldn't even see that? Yeah, I couldn't. I mean, the only person I was fooling was myself into thinking that I still like had some sense of control over this whole thing or that, you know, I had, convince people that I was truly okay. Um, and that it was, it, it was fine. Like, Oh yeah, they had the concern, but I blew them off. The only person I was fooling was myself. Yeah. Okay. And so you said when you, you got home around uh, July and you went to rehab in January of, of 2006 mm-hmm. of the following year. So you said you were doing some pretty extensive therapy and group therapy. Uh, what mm-hmm. did that, what did that consist of? Just kind of were they was the goal to get to the root cause of why you felt you needed to, um, you know, control things in this manner or. Okay. Yeah. Let me backtrack just a little bit, Kevin, Please. because I, I did not I did not do I know I said I did, but I did not do group therapy until I came home from rehab. Gotcha. So OK. I was seeing a therapist one on one. Um. And really, honestly, I did not talk about my eating disorder to the therapist until um, probably like November. You know, we we talked about a lot of other stuff Mm -hmm. that had gone on in my life. We talked about a lot of other stuff that I, I definitely think that we needed to work through. But I very vividly remember the day that I was like, I'm going to need to say this out loud. 
Um, How hard was that? It was really hard. I mean, I was having, I was having these like heart palpitations and I had to go on like a heart monitor. Um, And that's when it really sort of sank in. Like I've done some serious damage to my body. Um, And so, I mean, I can remember it. I'm just picturing it in my head right now, sitting in the therapist's office. I remember I was facing the window. The sun was shining down. um, And I was just like, you know, I, I, I um, think that I may have a problem. And I was like, my mom and dad think I have a problem. And the therapist was like, well, what do they think? And I was like, you know, they think that I have an eating disorder. And she's like, well, what do you think? And it was just kind of in that moment, I thought it's now or never. Mm. And I said, I think maybe they might be right. (laughs) And so I spoke to that therapist and she transferred me to an eating disorders, a therapist who specialized in eating disorders. Um, And I met with her a few times and then she brought in my parents and sort of said, we need to send her to rehab. And um, one, I, I, I just want to point out again, I, um, that had to have been so difficult. So you should kudos to you for being able to talk about that, uh, especially after all this time that you were kind of avoiding it. Um, that's not an easy thing to do. So I think that's all. That's really amazing. And then at this point, when you told the therapist and then you were transferred, were you on the heart monitor already? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> I had to wear one. I think I wore it. I don't know how, I think I had it for like a week because they were trying to track these times when my heart would like skip or it would start racing. Um, and I would like have to sit down because I was sweating profusely and having trouble breathing. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. Yeah. Like the shit was real, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you go in, your parents are brought in. Mm-hmm. And tell us what happened after that. Um, there are not a lot of eating disorder facilities, uh, eating treatment disorders um, facilities. And at the time, there were even less. Like, I think there's one now in Nashville, which is closer. Um, but sort of the one that is most well known is Renfrew. And so the therapist recommended Renfrew. And um, just by chance, it was located in Philadelphia Mm. and, you know, theater major, it's all about the symbolism and the metaphor. (laughs) And I I was like, yes, I'm going to go to rehab in Philadelphia where it all started. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's going to end, too. I'm going to I'm going to fix it there. Leave it behind. Um, And so I, I went up there. Um, and I was there for, I think, 30 or 31 days. So what, and I, I'm just ignorant of this, kind of what what is rehab for eating disorders like? Um, I, I assume there are like group therapies. Do they monitor what you eat? How do they, yeah, kind of tell us a little bit high level, at least your experience. Um, so there are different degrees. You know, when when I first got there, it was 
can't be left alone. All of the bathrooms are locked. The stairs are locked. Um, You are doing individual therapy. You're doing family therapy. You're doing group therapy. You're meeting with a nutritionalist. You're meeting with, um, you know, someone to sort of monitor your medication while you're there. And mealtime is like they unlock the door. It's all timed. And you are given a very specific meal plan and calorie intake. And I think you're given like 30 minutes to eat. And you get a rating of how you eat. Like, did you eat everything on your plate? Did you eat something? And and you get more privileges the more that you eat. Um, you said the stairs were locked. Why were the stairs locked? Uh, because when people are forced to eat for the first time in a long time or forced to not vomit something, they're going to look for any way they can to try and burn off those calories. I see. So running up and down stairs is one of the ways that people would try and do that. Okay. And were people, you said when you first got there, you're not left alone. So they watched you eat. Uh, Yes. And that continued the whole time. We were always monitored. But like um, at the beginning too, um, I was not watched while I used the bathroom, but I had to have it unlocked and someone sat outside. And I was not allowed, you know, a razor for like two weeks. Um, And it all sounds like really extreme. And I guess to some extent it is, but it's also there for very specific reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, My, okay, so I started there um, and the first day is just whatever. You have to wake up very early in the morning to go have your weight and your vitals done, Mm -hmm. which will sort of dictate like, um, you know, if your weight drops and they're going to add more food to your meal plan, if your vitals are weird, they might say, okay, you can't, you can't participate in the group fitness today. Um, I think it was my first full day there. So I had woken up to go have my vitals. Um, and I, I had a seizure, which I had, never had one before in my life um, and had to be taken out by an ambulance and was hospitalized for a few days, not for a few days, but for uh, a couple of like half the day. Um, And that was really scary too of, you know, what have I done? Um, It was scary in that, you know, I'm in this city. I, I've just had a seizure or something, you know, and, and then I'm being put in an ambulance by myself. Yeah, I'm 22, 23, but I'm a, you know, I'm a baby and yeah. I'm away from my family. I didn't have a cell phone, you know, and um, and it was just like, OK, I have done this to myself. Like. I, I need. Something's got to give. Yeah. Something's got to change. And so you, gosh, I'm sorry. I'm just processing all that. So you had a seizure, you're rushed to the hospital. You said you're there for about a half a day, which anybody who's Mm -hmm. been in the hospital for more than one minute, they're like, I've been here too long. 
Um, mm-hmm. And especially, as you said, that realization that you're having, because another thing I was going to ask you is you just you also told us about that many different types of therapy that you're doing. So you're doing intensive one on one. You're doing group therapy. You're doing familial uh, you know, therapy with your family mm-hmm. where that obviously is going to be trying. And that obviously is going to be, God, just so challenging because it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you relied on this eating disorder as a way in some senses to not deal with those other problems. And now it's like, one, we're going to monitor what you eat. And two, uh, we're also going to talk about some very difficult things. How did you? And there was get- also, there was also some really awesome stuff too. I mean, we did, I did a lot of art therapy. Okay. Um, I learned how to knit and crochet while I was there. Um, do you still do we that? We did. At, I have not done it in a while because kids. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, um, and we did like mindful eating. I mean, there was, there was also a lot of really cool stuff that went on there. Um, you know, every time we'd eat, we'd have to go sit with a, with a group for 45 minutes just, mm. and we would just kind of, sometimes we talk about our feelings. Sometimes we would just talk about random shit. It was just to get our minds off of, I need to go throw this up. I need to go throw this up or I can't believe I ate this. Um, and you know, like I, I really formed some very deep emotional connections with some of the other girls that were there. God, I, I so, can only and, imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, oh, sorry. You were going to say something else. No, I mean, it just, you know, like I needed all of that mm-hmm. because I could not do it on my own. And I, I think I had spent so much time trying to think I've got this. I'm under control. I know what's best that I really did need to be under the control of somebody else who was like, this is what you're going to do. And you're, you're going to do it. And, you know, I don't, I don't like to get in trouble. So it's like, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) Um, And, and just slowly working to change those habits and those mindsets and just get my brain working again. Yeah. And so you're there, you're there for a month or as you said, about 30 days. Yeah. So you come home and then you said there was group therapy after you got home. Yeah. Uh, So tell us a little bit about that and kind of how you continued to work to stay healthy, even when you're outside of such a very insular, um, supportive environment. Yeah. So, I mean, when I came home, uh, I was doing individual therapy and then also group therapy. Um, you know, I am very grateful that when I went to rehab, I was 22, 23 years old um, because the girls that were in high school, I can't, there's just so much pressure and shit in high school. Like I can't imagine going through all of that and then coming back and like having to sit through a high school cafeteria. Um, so I think that I was in a much better place coming back and, and, you know, going into a, going back to a job and having some structure in my life, but also some freedom. Um, I also, 
being a perfectionist and not wanting to ask for help can be a really bad thing, but it can also be a really good thing because when I decided this was it, like that was it for me. Um, I was paying for rehab on my own and I made that decision. And then especially after the seizure, it was like, I am here for a reason and this is going to stick because it's the only time I can do this and I'm going to get better. Um, and so that really drove me and motivated me throughout the whole process at rehab. And then mm-hmm. once I got home. How how did you find um, – so that this was 2006, right? And mm-hmm. I think – and again, when I've spoken to you, when I, I heard you eloquently speak on on this topic with your pastor, you said this never really goes away. So do you no. find yourself – well, tell us what you mean. I mean, I, I, I obviously conceptually know what that means, but tell us what you mean by that. Like how does it – how does it – for lack of a better term, stick around. Well, I mean, I think it's like anything, Kevin, like if you have depression, you're never cured of depression. There are times where you've got it more under control and there are times where it it grips you a little bit better or a little bit harder. The same with anxiety um, or alcoholism or any sort of addiction like that or, or, or life controlling issue. I know I am always going to have some sort of preoccupation with my body. Like when I wake up and I get dressed and how I feel in my body and my skin is a huge predictor of how my attitude for the day is going to go. And I I do think that that is always going to be with me. And it's something that I have to be very, very mindful of. Um, I know for myself that there are certain, I don't wear a ton of shorts. I don't wear two piece bathing suits. Like that's just not something that I'm going to be comfortable doing. And so I'm not going to do it and that's okay. I can make that choice. Um, There Since I got back from rehab, there have been times where I have fallen into the, um, you know, restricting what I eat or binging and purging. And I have been able to snap myself out of it very quickly. Um, I think it is something that I will always battle. I do feel very confident now saying that. I do not think that I will ever binge and purge again in my life. Um, I feel confident saying that because one, I've been out of rehab for so long. And then two, just the life experiences that I've had since then. You know, I've got two girls of my own. Um, and I want them to be okay with their body, however it looks. I don't want them to pick up on how mom's attitude and behavior is dictated by her body and and think that that's normal and that's okay. Um, Mm. So that is, that is, that's huge. Um, And so I do feel comfortable saying that I don't think I'll ever binge and purge again because there's, there's too many people out there that, looked to me 
and there's too many people out there that, um, you know, depend on me and I depend on them. Yeah. Um, a couple things I want to say too. Um, you made a very, I, I, I find it to be a, uh, very salient point, but I think we forget it is there's no cure for anxiety. There's no cure for depression. It's something that is managed. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just a good reminder that you're going to have good days and bad days. And to give yourself the grace, like, like you said, sometimes when you wake up, you're like, Oh, today might be a tough day because of how you're feeling. And just kind of accepting that, uh, I, I think is really important. And I think that just hearing what you just said now, as opposed to say when you were kind of talking about when you went home in 2005 and how you're, how you are looking at the people who look to you and how you have such a clearer and more uh, love filled uh, idea of who you are to people and also that you need them as well. I, I just think that's a really inspiring thing to hear. Um, and, you know, coming on here uh, on the show and, and talking about some very difficult things. I cannot thank you enough for opening up about it and uh, and and being so honest and and forthright about it. And as we wrap up, is there anything else that you want you know to say to share with 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 anybody who's listening um, that that maybe you weren't able to share? Um, I mean, I don't feel brave and inspiring for sharing what I've been through. I wish that people would do it more because the reality is, is that everybody's got something. Um, And just like we shouldn't be ashamed to talk about our health issues. Like, you know, two weeks ago I was vomiting my guts out. I caught some stomach bug from the elementary school kids. Like I'm not embarrassed or ashamed to say that and tell people like I was really sick and I was puking my guts out. We shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed to tell people, about our mental health as well, because it is something that everybody goes through. Not everybody may go through an eating disorder, but everybody goes through that feeling of not being in control. Um, Not everyone may deal with addictions, but everybody has something in some point in their life where, you know, we've all got our shit. We've all got something. And I, if, if we talked about it more openly and treated it like the normal, natural thing it is, I mean, it would be an incredible thing where people wouldn't be afraid to go get health and or help and health insurance would take it more seriously and provide more coverage. And, um, you know, it's just and people wouldn't wait so long to get help because it's just a normal, you know, it's like I tell the kids at my school, it's like puberty. Yeah, it's going to be a little gross sometimes, but it's normal and it's natural and you should feel comfortable talking about it because everybody's got it. I mean, that is so well said and I I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's the whole reason, you know, that we do the show and um I thank you so much for coming on and 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 helping to remind everybody who's listening, remind me, remind Brent, you know, hey, nobody's alone here in this. Mm-hmm. And as we talk about it a little more, you know, maybe we will all feel a little less alone and we'll be able to mm-hmm. deal with it. Because you're right. Two weeks ago, you were puking, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and like it's not like when I got COVID, I was like, I'm not telling anybody. I'm not going to talk about it. 
Um, and it's ex- why why we do that with mental health. It's the stigma and everything. And and with people like you coming forward and telling your story, uh, I know you said you don't feel brave or inspiring, but I think it's both brave and inspiring because if people were to follow your example, uh, it, it will have only positive consequences. So thank you so much for coming on, Kate. I really, really appreciate it. And there would it. be a lot more flash mobs if people followed my example. There you go. There you go. Man, I was in a flash mob once. Don't tell my dad. I was at the Art Institute. Um, all right. Well, uh, I'll go ahead and close the same way I always close, which is uh, just a reminder that there's always room for kindness and grace, even when dealing with yourself. I forget it all the time. So just always being aware that you can be kind to yourself, you can give yourself grace, and you can be kind and give grace to others. And we will see you next time on Sad Times. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.